I didn't follow the trial closely because, again, it was boring to me. But like all of his so-called executives said, this guy did it. (laughs) 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 This guy asked me to change the balance sheet seven times. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Somebody came in fried up today. Wrong side of the bed. Wrong side of the bed. <laughs> it's been happening to me a lot recently. We'll just start. Just start ranting. There, nothing happened this week. There's nothing worth talking about in the investing world this week. Making fun of you might be worth it, but that's the only reason I'm here. I don't care about anything that happens. So here, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to send you something right now and ask you a question. Because one of the okay. things that you said was boring this week was you were talking about your boy, Sam. Or do you like to call whoa, him? Whoa, whoa, whoa. As, as you like to call him S Nobody's boy. Not, not my boy. Then why, why are you calling him S Diggity? How you on a... <laughs> Like nickname basis. If we got to go here, just were you surprised at the verdict or were you surprised that it took the juror like two hours, the jury two hours? Like this is as obvious it's, as a kid. It, maybe not the, the, the verdict specifically, but what I was surprised by was who I thought was on trial and who actually got convicted. Are you seeing this picture I just sent to you? I saw this online. I think this is a joke. Like this wasn't actually from the. All I know is, is. Your boy, S. S. Diggity, went into that courtroom looking like he looked. And apparently he came out of that courtroom looking like Colin Farrell. Because he not only defrauded the users of billions of dollars, he defrauded the public of those cheekbones. If you don't know, there's some apparent court drawing of him where he looks like super handsome all of a sudden. And no offense to FBF, S. BF, but I've never thought he was a particularly handsome dude. The, so the jokes got around about this drawing in particular were hilarious because it was like apparently Michael Lewis is doing uh, the the art now. It's an extremely flattering picture. It's it's more than extremely flattering. It's a different human. Like that, <laughs> it's a totally different. Human. That's why I don't think it's from the actual trial. Like it, it can't be. So. I'm going to switch slight gears for a moment here and reach into the fishbowl, but continue on this thread of, I'll call it misbehavior, misgivings. And this is not directly investing related. Sometimes things we talk about are not, but I do have a little bit of an investing spin on this. And it goes back to a conversation we had a few weeks ago that I'd like to talk about. So what I'm a jibba jab about right now is this New York Times piece called Kanye and Adidas, Money, Misconduct, and the Price of Appeasement. Megan Tuhi or Tuhe, I'll put this out there, credit where credit is due. And what they did was they went back and went through treasure troves of text messages, talked to former Adidas employees, talked to former Kanye West employees to get the scoop on what the daily be at with the Adidas and Kanye relationship. Headline basically here is Adidas came out at the end and said, look, over the past few weeks, whatever the time period was that they were talking about, but it was something like that short. It's become apparent to us that Kanye has been jibby-jabbing too much about things that do not reflect our values. We're cutting ties. However, if you go back to the start of the relationship, 
that same behavior or very similar behavior had existed according to this piece. Yeah. That's what that's what the whole piece is about. I'm gonna give a couple examples and then I wanna give you what I where like the the investing flavor of this comes from for me. And when I want to have a little conversation about that. So we can talk about yay if you want, or we can talk about the investing piece and or we're gonna talk about yay for just a little bit. Here's my favorite quote from Yay. And you're scared over there because this could go a lot of ways. Yeah, you, you don't hold on. When you say, here's my favorite quote from Yay, yes, it is frightening. Go ahead. This is a clean podcast. Want, yeah, here we go. If you want these crazy ideas and this crazy music and this crazy way of thinking, there's a chance it might come from a crazy person. Kanye West. That's legit. That's it. And that, that's real. And that, I think, is going to be a nice lead in to the topic from this article because i think that's kind of what he's made some brilliant stuff he's a very creative mind i i i kind of think adidas knew all along what they were working with here well, well that's that's what this whole piece yeah, is about right and the, the examples i'm just going to drop a few because this is a long long article we'll have it on the Substack on monday this is a long long article going back to the the beginning per what you were just saying there so Kanye West, according to this, goes and meets with folks at Adidas to look at some of their uh, like inspirations, what they wanted to lay out as inspiration for shoe designs. They have this mood board. Who knows what the heck was on that? But they had this mood yeah. board and they had a bunch of like fabrics and, and shoes. Kanye said he was offended by some of the selections they made. And he was so offended that what he then went to go do, according to this, was he drew a swastika on the front of the shoe. No. This was in 2013 at the first meeting that they had. <laughs> so when, when you start talking about, you know, a year ago, they, they cut ties and they were, and that's when a lot of the, at least from the Adidas perspective, when they started acknowledging his anti-Semitic like comments and whatnot, it back to the, back to the get from this. Also just weeks, according to this, before the 2013 swastika incident, the times found Mr. West made Adidas executives watch pornography during a meeting at his Manhattan apartment, ostensibly to spark creativity. Not so great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. Understood. Yes. I mean, I, that is actually the perfect, perfect retort here. No, it, exactly. It's th th this is the whole thing, and and it was after this that you know sales were going so so well, and this is what happens. This is what I really want to talk about because this is one of those things that happens. Adidas at this point in time had about I think it's like they said eight percent of the athletic shoe market. Uh, I don't know if it was global in the US, either one doesn't matter. And then Nike was closer to 50. And Adidas is like, we got to catch up. Yay was a way that that some of the more like push the boundaries executives saw as a way to do that. It was from a sales perspective, it was working. They started to build up a lot of sales, making a lot of money. The second contract they made with him had a $10 million guarantee on this. He was getting 15% of sales. And so they, they were doubling down on their investment. Here's the conversation I want to have that relates to investing is a few weeks ago, there was a certain stock that I was talking to you about. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about having my money invested in the stock anymore because of certain behaviors that the company had. And I think it's an interesting conversation. The parallel I'm making here, it's a little bit different, but the parallel here is in, in business, let's ignore the reputational risk because that's different in this case. Uh, but let's ignore the reputational risk and just say, even if no one ever found out about this stuff, as a person in business, 
where do you draw the line of who you're working with? As an investor, where do you draw the line and who you're giving your money to in order for them to continue with their desired goals and behaviors and business practices? That's what I'd love to have a little short conversation about. That's a minefield, man. Set me up to st stick my foot in my mouth. Here's how I'd answer it. I think there are people who are equally crazy that aren't famous that lead creative works at the biggest and most popular companies all over the world that don't make headlines. And so the reason I read that Kanye quote is because there's a lot of truth to that. And a lot of these, the creative types that are pushing the boundaries are a little crazy. And, and so I'll tell you from an outsider's perspective, you and I both like shoes. I'm not really an Adidas guy. I certainly have some, but it felt like the street credibility of Adidas in the, the yay branding years went up exponentially. Yeah. Um, I Absolutely. understand why the people, the execs liked his designs. Absolutely. 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 And the thing is, you're talking about feet and mouths. The thing is that this isn't, it's not as straightforward as, as sometimes people can draw the line. It feels like it could be straightforward sometimes, but you even take a, what was it? Maybe two, three, four years ago, somewhat recently when Roseanne Barr, Arnold, I don't know what her name was at the end um, of, oh, yeah. of her. Yeah. yeah. Roseanne came on the Twitter and made a, made a comment about Valerie Jarrett, which was not favorable by any means. It was like a, it was a bad comment about Valerie Jarrett. It was a joke, but yet and still too much. Now, uh, she got cut from her own show as a result of that. And the the question that I then, that I kind of raise from this is I go, if she came out on Twitter and put that joke out there, do you think this was the first time that like she's said something like that? I no, doubt it. No. I doubt it. Yeah. And so so that draws, then the, the line becomes, is it that you're not working with that person or is it that someone else found out? And so that that's one question. Another thing on the investing side, I'd say is, if I was like, you know what? No, I do not want my money to be in this company. So take my money out. Instead, I'm going to put it in the S&P 500. Oh, guess what? This company is in the S&P 500. Plenty of them. <laughs> yeah. So Run by am I going to be like, am, am I going to be like, you know what? Actually, no, I'm going to create my own index and I'm going to invest in the S&P 499 instead. Mm -hmm. So like, where do you draw the line? I, just, I think it's a, it is fascinating with this stuff. And some things I think some people can be like, look, it goes too far. And when we see it goes too far, you pull it. But then that line is not as easy to, uh, to find as other people think. I think, it's a, I think it's an interesting topic and concept for folks. Yeah, I completely agree. I'll, I'll tell you that I, I now own my own business. And one of the best parts of owning your own business is you can decide who you want to work with on your terms. That's a huge benefit that I think people overlook. You can actually put your money where your mouth with it in a lot of ways. In terms of your concrete example of, do I want the S and P? It wouldn't even be four ninety nine, Google. So yeah, the S and P six four fifty. I mean, it'd be <laughs> something. I don't think that energy and effort is efficient, which goes into an entirely different place where I don't think you wanted to go. But I also don't believe that investing in a company's future cash flows is giving them carte blanche to say that you approve of every decision they've ever made. I just 
disconnect. It's a financial decision. It doesn't mean you fully support their values, if you want to put it that way, because it can't. It's too, you can get stuck digging an endless hole if you want to look at the morals and values of every company you ever invest in. Or every person in every company you're invested in. Because to, to your point, it's also, let's say you invest in a company and future cash flows, and then the CEO changes. In, e- in either direction, right? What, what you're saying is I'm investing in the future cash flows of this business, but executives can change in and out. And really what we're talking about is people and the behaviors of people, not the behaviors of companies. So it's a, yeah, I, I think I think it's a it's an interesting thing for folks to think about. I know people will fall on various sides of that line, but when I was reading this piece, it's like, oh my goodness, it is, it's really fascinating. And, and going back to your um, owning your own business point, there is, the two things, one, yes, you get to make those decisions. And two, you, from what you've stated very clearly, are not like trying to build a multi-billion dollar organization. You don't have interest in that. And so along those lines, it's it's different when you're like, actually, I can choose whatever the five clients are that I want to work with versus, okay, now I have 20,000 clients and I need to get to 30,000 clients and so how do like then the denominator starts to go down it's a it's a great point but those things you're you're saying those things are linked those things are more linked than i think the large majority of people realize one of the reasons i've decided not to make the next fortune 500 company is because i want more control over that yeah yeah and also like to get in the nerd finance land having more control over that allows you to pick clients that have a a more ideal profile for you, which ultimately leads to increased profitability. If you do it right, there are some huge advantages to staying small choice. Yeah. Choice. You mentioned that you never know who's going to run a company or like you could have invested with one CEO and then that person changes or the board changes. There's a company called in mode limited. It's on the NASDAQ ticker is I N M D. Did I send you this? You did not, no. Their CEO this week went on the record, and I'm going to just summarize because it's long, and effectively said, we talked about buybacks a bunch. Last time we spent $100 million on the stock, the stock price didn't change. It actually went down. So we're not doing buybacks again. The whole, his entire thought process, which is so telling, is we were buying stock to keep the stock price up. And what you can read between the lines on that is he gets stock-based compensation or he owns a lot of equity and he wants that equity to be with a certain price where I lost my mind. And <laughs> so did other people in the financial community is as a CEO, what is your most important job? It's typically capital allocation. This dude doesn't appear to know. He doesn't appear to know that he should know what the value, the true intrinsic value of his stock is. And if it's below that, especially significantly below that, he should be buying back stock regardless of what is happening to the stock price because it's good for him and his company. That disconnect just floored me. And I don't even want to mention the, the name. Like it just, we can talk <laughs> about it hypothetically. Yeah, I, I, know, I know that these are, if this will sound a bit different, and maybe it is a bit different, but along the same, I think it's the same vein of what you're saying here is I, I can't imagine if you came to me and you're like, 
you got to look at this stock, Winnebago Industries. Like, oh, interesting. Tell me more about it. And you said, you have to buy this stock because if you buy this stock, the price will increase. <laughs> That's the perfect example. It's like, uh, oh, uh, uh, okay. Like it's not, it's not that the valuation is under, as you were saying, intrinsic value. It's just, you buy it. So the price goes up. That's a, it's just a weird capital allocation decision. I, I got to just continue to hammer on that. So we find a stock, Dougal's over there in our hypothetical land is worth $100 billion, right? And we find a stock that only has a market cap of a billion bucks. And I just come to you and I go, dude, just sp if you spend $5 billion on this, I can guarantee you the stock <laughs> price is going to go up. It's going to be great. <laughs> and you're like, look, I'm a genius over here. I just, you just effectively overpaid for the company by five times. I mean, <laughs> I cannot imagine. Let me just give you the market cap of this. Uh, this company in mode is a, effectively a $2 billion company based on current market cap. Uh, I can't imagine leading a $2 billion company and seemingly, and maybe I'm being harsh to the CEO because I don't have the full context. I didn't actually listen to the transcript, but seemingly not understanding that it's about the true value of an investment you make rather than just... I'm writing a check in hopes that things go up. Yeah, it's messed up. And that person should not be running that company flat out. I'll just say it based on what you just said, based on what you just said, based on what oh, you just said. I, I'm not blaming that on you. I'm saying based on those, like that one piece of context. I don't know the full context either. Can I switch to something else you said was boring? Absolutely. But it's a, it's a cousin of something else you said was boring. So Charlie Munger was all up on the news this week. And by all up on the news, I mean, there was a, Wall Street Journal piece and an acquired podcast. But Charlie Munger is 99 years old. That's a lot of activity. I think they might have been a part of the same conversation, but yet and still. I want to pull a few things from the Wall Street Journal Q&A, if that's okay with you. You said it was Please. boring. Yeah. The, and, and most times, Charlie's not saying something that's brand new, but Charlie's words are so straightforward, I find them to be interesting in many times and lots of, lot of lessons to glean from that 99 years. One thing that was asked of Charlie by the Wall Street Journal was they said, if you could go back to 1950s and start your investing career over again, would you do anything differently? By the way, in none of these questions, I think that he answered the question. But like, he, just, just as he a, just talks. Yeah. <clears throat> but this yeah. is actually the one not boring thing that he said this week. Yeah. And so he said, times have changed. He said a bunch of stuff that was basically times have changed. And then he says this, I think that the modern investor to get ahead almost has to get in a few stocks that are way above average. They try and have a few apples or Googles or so on just to keep up because they know that a significant percentage of all the gains that come to all the common stockholders combined is going to come from a few of these super competitors. He says this after, as I mentioned, he says, times have changed. He said, back in the day, there was low-hanging fruit. If you have the brain of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, right, and that style, the Ben Graham style, he said there was like low-hanging fruit. And he said the low-hanging fruit has gone away. And that's what he said right before uh, he dropped this. Well, he also said, I swear I'm getting there to the answer. He also said he doesn't anticipate them selling Apple like mm. anytime soon, uh, which is saying the same thing. And I think this entire talking point is ties back to Buffett being reluctant to buy a so-called technology name 
like there was the longest time in the early 2010s where he hadn't really dipped his toe in Apple or Google or Facebook or anything else. I'm still, I'm absolutely shocked he didn't buy Meta when it was in its lows last year because it just got so cheap that I thought he'd buy it based on the same logic of like, there are certain companies, the way the US tech sector is structured that you have to own because they just make up such a large percentage of commerce. Yep. But this is funny because I slightly disagree with him on this take. We are in a bull run for growth stocks that's lasted 13 years, effectively since 2008, 2009. And things like small value stocks and emerging market economies, we've covered this at nauseum, are at their basically their cheapest metrics historically when you look at trends against value stocks to growth stocks or um, price to book price to earnings, price to cash flow metrics on those certain things. So yes, in the last 13 or 14 years, you had to own an Apple or a Google or a NVIDIA or something like that, or Tesla to get ahead. But to me, that's just an anomaly where we've been in a crazy cycle. I think it's a really exciting time to not own those stocks because they all are fairly expensive. I take a a slightly different view on that too. Not, not it's not a against what you just said, but when you have five hundred billion dollars at your disposal, the mindset that Char- Charlie Munger no longer maybe he can put himself in these shoes, but I would bet no longer put himself in the shoes of the person that has I know a thousand dollars and trying to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Right? When you have five hundred billion dollars, which is roughly where they are, they have about three hundred and fifty billion dollars in their stock portfolio and one hundred and fifty billion dollars in cash to move the needle on that. To find investments that you can put that much cash into that are going to shift your portfolio, it makes more sense to look at large cap, like mega cap companies. But for the common stockholder, like your everyday person, yeah, I think there's there's oh, the indexes is what we talk about generally. But I think you can probably, I don't know, this. I think it's a, it's not a great mindset probably for most people to have. But I found it to be uh, interesting coming out of his face. Yes. So um, you're actually going to bring up two other points that tie to this. So on the Munger interview with the Acquired podcast, they asked something similar. It's a similar talking point, and I'll paraphrase. And he talks about how much harder it is today. And they ask him like, if he'd be able to have the same returns. Correct me here, because I don't think I'm going to get it entirely right. And well, that and if he'd start again. Yep. And he, he kind of says like, it's a losing game now, right? For the most part, it's hard. Yeah. For the, yeah. yeah. Much harder. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's incredibly true. But at the same point, I also think, and this is where my memory is failing me a little bit, that he still says, like, I'm just naturally wired to try. Yeah, so exactly. Even if, the, if it was harder, like, I probably wouldn't end up with the same wealth, but I'd still, this is still what I do. And he still finds it to be so fascinating, the, the amount of diversity that you can get into in this world. Yeah, I I think that was interesting. He uh, another thing he said on the tech front was that he would not break up the big tech companies. And I liked I liked this line. I think capitalism should expect to get a few big winners by accident. Completely. Yeah. Uh, and they, that's going to be an interesting place to see like where it goes to with all of the whatever they what are they called the five horsemen whatever those big like the Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft some other company shoe carnival like the like those big 
those big companies. <laughs> I couldn't think shoot of another. Carnival's up big this week. We are eating steak this week in my we, house. We, shoot shoot we, Carnival, we, knocking socks off. It's so great. We are eating steak this week. Winnebago, too. It's just been a great week. <laughs> my other point that's slightly related, I don't know if you're able to consume this. Morgan Housel was on with Tim Ferriss. Oh, no, I didn't see that. Yeah, and one of the things Morgan mentioned there, wide-ranging conversation, is that he basically just grew up idolizing and loving Buffett. And it hasn't been, and Munger, it hasn't been until recently that he realized all the sacrifices they've made. And the Buffett example is the simplest one. Like Buffett has valued nothing more than investing since he was 11 years old at the cost of his family, his kids, his hobbies, like everything. And that's where I am with, I still respect them uh, ridiculously, but that's where I am with both Buffett and Munger. Their end game is not my preferred end game. Not at all. They're super smart, great investors, but holistically, that's not what I'm trying to be. Where I find it to be always valuable to gain lessons and principles and whatnot from folks like that, but to emulate no interest. But you can yeah. see some of the things they do and see how it applies to your own life. But I yeah, I agree with that. And you you've said that plenty of times. And it also goes back to the Morgan Housel piece around the um what he called it like how what it takes to get rich, right? Or whatever that we mm-hmm. talked about. Yeah. But it was it's really about how hard it is uh, when you are. I fully agree. What else you got? Well I don't know that we tied up the the bow on Sam Bigman Freed. Oh okay. I you mean, better put a you better put a bow on that. You see them abs? He was guilty. <laughs> he was obviously guilty. I didn't follow the trial closely because, again, it was boring to me. But like all of his so-called executives said, this guy did it. <laughs> <laughs> this guy asked me to change the balance sheet seven times. <laughs> I, it, was there any surprise? I mean, I don't know. I, I still think the Michael Lewis, maybe this is all I have to get off my chest. I think the Michael Lewis book was fascinating and I found some of his points persuasive. He never, to me, was like not guilty. He was like, it's more complex than you realize. And the bankruptcy attorneys have motivation here. The Ray J dude. What's the, what's the bankruptcy guy? Ray, <laughs> Ray J? Like, it's like, like Kim Ray Kardashian's former lover? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he says more complex, but like he's guilty as could be when it comes to effectively even if you aren't nefariously losing billions of dollars if you're losing billions of dollars of customer funds that's called fraud anywhere in the world not just in america and you go to jail so he got 100 plus years right or the it's formal sentencing isn't there but it's effectively that's what he will get correct that's the rest of his life yeah who knows when all the deals are done and good behavior i don't know how all that stuff like what he ends up serving in the end but yeah that's what that's what it looks like and it i I wonder what is going through his mind right now because he seems like i don't know it it seems like a thing where probably injustice has been served you really think in his mind no i don't think so you think this is justice in his mind i mean i think you get like i said i think it's way more complex than there's more more gray area than like 
your layman might believe, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how Dougal's, if you gave me whatever, $200,000 and I like misplaced it. Cause I thought some shoe carnival and some coals were hot stocks. That's still fraud. Oh yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying that it's injustice. I'm, I'm saying in his head, do you think he believed he was doing something wrong while he was doing this? I don't know. Maybe that's a, okay. a question. No, but... no, no. Let's just, we'll just put a bow on it. Uh, no, I don't think he believed he was doing something wrong as he did it. I think anyone with a brain in retrospect looks back at what actions were actually taken <laughs> and says, sorry, you just can't do that. And that's why when I talked through the Michael Lewis book, I talked about how he was trained in yeah, Wall yeah, Street yeah. and how he yeah. lost the 300 million. And there was no ramifications of that. Like it, it, based on his history, yeah. I can understand why he thought this was normal, but it's not normal. It, no. Wild, wild, wild. And it, I mean, it, in the, I mean, the guy obviously had some kind of talent or has some kind of talent. It's kind of like the, uh, I mean, it's very different talent, but whatever, I can't remember the guy's name, but the fire festival guy, you were incredibly yeah. good at marketing and sales. Like, could you yeah. just go market and sell something like Adidas? You know, just like yeah. go, go to Adidas yeah, and sell more shoes. Corrupt. Yeah. Um, why, why do you have to? Okay, well, so if we're going to go to, we, we're talking frauds. Sounds like WeWork is going bankrupt this next week, Diggles. That, that's what it seems like. Do that's we think Adam like. Newman should buy it back? <laughs> Somebody sent me this week. Is a, I thought this was wonderful. Adam Newman, so now he has this company, Flow. Yeah. And Adam Newman says, the need for community has never been greater. As his community, his last community startup is filing for bankruptcy. Well, it's creating a need. This is brilliant marketing on his behalf. Yeah. I mean, he's starting a real estate company. He might as well buy the real estate of his last company. I see no I see no issue with it. it Adam, if you need another check, let me know. Well, to be fair, WeWork owns basically no real estate, which is one of the problems. Yeah, that's, that is true. I mean, if they would have bought back in 2007, highly desirable properties, in highly desirable neighborhoods at highly desirable interest rates, it's possible they'd still have a company today, even with all the other nonsense. I could I see a couple things that might have been wrong. That was one of them. I think when when asked what business are you in, and the answer is improving the world's consciousness, that might have been another another potential problem. Another problem is that in their pitch deck, they had a hypothetical illustration of Ibita, which was a straight up asking a three-year-old to just draw a, a line on a graph it was one of, it's one of the greatest charts i think i've ever seen the, this business was not a business it was the primary issue it seems i <laughs> i love your strategy today because I, I told you i wasn't interested in anything you're just over here poking me um <laughs> after so this goes back to ftx and sam bankman fried did you see the sequoia guys being like yeah, our due diligence really is, we figured this out 18 months ago. This was definitely a fraud. Guys, as a venture capitalist, your job with due diligence is to do it before you write the check, not oh. once the prosecutors come in and take over receivership of this company. Seems very wise to just remain silent about this. We all make mistakes in life. This was clearly a mistake, but don't come out trying to brag about your due diligence with this horrible investment you made. Well, they might have listened to that. I think it was Stan uh, Druckenmiller 
I believe that was saying that when he sometimes when he sees an investment idea, he invests and then goes and does the research. Maybe they heard that and they just took it to that next level. Yeah. Just invest and then never do the research. Yeah, and there's ne- and there's never, yeah, and just never <laughs> there's this is a this is a two-step process. No, you're right though. It just it, and it's part of probably this what you were mentioning earlier around this last period of time where thing when things get so late in late 90s too when things get so irrationally exuberant to use that that phrase due diligence becomes can become this is not for everyone but can become more of like a checkbox than a real a real thing and folks are saying like we have to get in this and then people are likely more i don't know if this is sequoia but you're more likely to use someone else's investment as your due diligence it's like well terry said it was good and yeah, i like yeah. terry's you know really good so like we'll get in there uh so uh anyway what's in your fishbowl there was something i want to talk about but i don't know if there is anything to talk about it but i always find james mcintosh's pieces to be interesting and he put out this piece in the wall street journal this week that's saying that in the long term investing is all about the economy the point of it is that when you look at the the various pieces of news that people are reacting to right now, it comes back to yields and the impact of yields on stock prices or like interest in the stock market. And he said yields are about the economy. Like you might look at what the, the Federal Reserve is doing. The Federal Reserve is making its decisions based on data about the economy. Right. And so I think it's it's he always just has these interesting takes on what's going on. The two things that I found most interesting in this piece weren't even the words necessarily, but there were a couple graphs that I've seen versions of these plenty of times, but for some reason really struck me. So he he has this one graph that goes from looks like about 1950 to now, and it's treasuries as a percentage of GDP. And if you go back to that time period, so you're looking at right after World War II. And roughly 100, let's call it 115% of GDP by eyeing this graph is where we were. And we're currently a little bit above 100, but we were at that same place, if not a little bit higher, not too long ago. So we're effectively at war. (laughs) It's like, as far as our, as far as that's concerned, I was like, that is super fascinating to me. I mean, your your joke there is unfortunately, it just makes me sad. From a simple finance perspective, this is depressing because in times of economic boom, what a government is supposed to do is run a budget surplus or at least balance the budget yep. and build a foundation for times of war or great depression. And that joke, your joke worked 24 months ago, Dougals. It doesn't work anymore because effectively America is at war without our own troops and without our own people in two different yeah. spots. Yeah. It, it's a slippery slope, man. It's a fragile place. So if, if if someone wanted to, I don't want to take this down the political realm uh, or geopolitical realm, but if someone wanted to poke the bear, this is the time to poke the bear. You, well, um, no, we're going to go there for just one minute. The time to poke the bear is like three to five years from now. If these conflicts continue... If our politicians don't ever tighten the belt, you could get to the point where printing money to finance whatever the whim of whatever president and congressional leadership is in place doesn't really work anymore. And that's a scary place to be. 
The second graph that I found, it's very similar. It came right after the other graph in this piece, is showing the 10-year treasury yield along that same period of time. And I mean, this looks like the stock chart of GM, basically. It took a took this huge leap from in the you know post-World War II, you're talking about two and a half percent roughly, and then it gets up above 15% in 1980, and then came all the way back down as we've talked about before and now has spiked up from from like zero percent now up to five percent looking at these i think is for the people that are interested in this looking at these two graphs i think is an important reminder as to where we are and when we've talked about normalcy like what is normal i think it's it's important to look at these two graphs so those are the two things i, I pulled away but i always find james mcintosh's pieces to be interesting and thought-provoking He's such an impressive thinker, and we've had him on the show before because of that. Douglas, you're right. I've never seen these graphs this way directly adjacent to each other. Yeah. And it shows what appears to be a clear correlation between the percentage of treasure, treasures as a percentage of GDP versus yields. It's just fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I never really thought about those things being as intertwined as they appear to be. So we'll we'll put this out on the Substack on Monday. Y'all can take a gander. It's, it's good stuff. Well, so you mentioned Drunken Miller. I don't uh, really want to go there, but do you? <laughs> Let's do it. I didn't get a chance to do a deep dive. He was at the Robin Hood conference, I think in New York City. And um, he continues to be very critical of the Fed and in this case, Janet Yellen. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Like, did yeah. this pique your interest at all? Yeah. Not, not to your point, not at the deep level, but it did. And I, was, I, it was so aggressive. I didn't, I just, I didn't expect it. Is mostly where it piqued my interest. So that's exactly what happened from afar for me. And this is why it's great to have, you know, someone like you to talk through a reaction to this because. A year ago or so, he was at USC's Marshall Business School and gave a high-level presentation talking about the, his concerns about government debt, which I think are really valid, including his concerns about Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security spending, et cetera. This one from afar seemed kind of like old man yelling at the grass for growing or something. <laughs> and I, I think I really need to do a deep dive and dig in because maybe this is just one of those where the headlines are deceiving. But uh, one of the criticisms was, was about for Janet Yellen not refinancing uh, debt during periods of low interest rates. Again, I need to learn more. I didn't really think we had the ability to do that. I thought she kind of had a mandate based on the current budget to issue different maturities, like different treasury maturities based on the mandate she gets from our governmental leaders rather than thinking of this as like a business that she runs and is all about optimizing the way her debt is structured. Am I crazy there? How much flexibility does someone like Janet Yellen have to run the government with a business mindset and really think about capital allocation and how much are they just taking orders from what our political leaders say? I don't know how it works exactly. So I can't comment on that, but I, I think it's, what I what I wonder about this is how much is, well, one, how much is what he's saying true? Let's just say, I, I don't mean um, factual necessarily, but just uh, was this the biggest blunder? 
let's yeah. like right did she have the power i think that's one thing even if it is the biggest blunder i then come back to this question of is that is it the biggest blunder in hindsight or at the time because i could see where let's say janet yellen has the power if Jenny Yellen goes, you know what? In so Janet Yellen was the Federal Reserve Chair from 2014 to 2018, four years. And if Jan- Janet Yellen said, in six years, there's going to be a global pandemic, we're going to have to release like a whole lot of money, cash, and interest rates are are going to continue to be low for a while. I think she might be like, yeah, you know what I should do is <laughs> right now I should make sure that dot dot dot. Yeah, but at the time. I don't know if that period necessarily, it would have been different if Janet Yellen were Federal Reserve Chair from like 2010 to 2020. I think you can put a, maybe a lot more blame in there, but I don't, I don't know. I, I think he, he might be right in that something different should have been done then because yes, for a long period of time, we messed things up. Is that on Janet Yellen at that particular time? I don't know. Well, Here's a headline just so we connect all the dots for the listeners. Uh, Stanley Drunken Miller criticizes Jan- Janet Yellen for not locking in long-term interest rates, calls it the biggest blunder in Treasury history. You're right that there were multiple people in that seat that could have taken advantage of the same thing, including Munchen under Trump. So yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I, with my history and watching U.S. Treasury, have just never really seen someone take a strategic approach on that. Now, I've been pr- plenty critical of the bank treasury managers locking in really low interest rates at long terms to try and make an extra five basis points because you were at historically low rates. It doesn't make any sense. So I think you can be equally as critical of the treasury for that, assuming they actually have the power to do something about it. But I don't think anyone's ever thought about the role that way in recent history. I mean, who knows? In the 1800s, someone might've done something like that. But (laughs) it's fascinating to me, the the more important point is if the role evolves into one where you're making capital allocation decisions, I'd call it. And in a way, that's a little scary to me because you'd be trusting one person to almost lead the U.S. government as if it's a company. And it seems like that one person then has a lot of power if they guess poorly about the direction of interest rates. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole the, the, our whole government structure is built around checks and balances. So that doesn't you know, because you, you could say that person's the president, but there's a reason that you have an independent Federal Reserve and, you know, and yeah. whatnot. So, yeah, that would be a quite a scary thing. So I don't know. I uh, I, I would I think I will. Go, I didn't watch the actual video. So I think I will go and and, and watch a bit of the interview to get uh, more info there. But I, I thought the headline was interesting in this uh, this piece. I thought that's some points that shocked me. So in how strong they were. Yeah. I think here's what I'll say. If anyone. Uh, of the listeners knows a market historian who could give us all the facts on what the Fed is able to do mm-hmm. and maybe some historic examples. I'd love to talk to that person because it, it could be a really fascinating discussion. Yeah. Cool. That a wrap? That's a wrap. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate you listening. Please rate and review the podcast. We love listener mail. Please, so you can send that over to skippydougals at gmail.com. Appreciate you.